This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So we all know technology is important. We all have technology in our lives, but why is it so important that the government would actually incentivize technology? And what are those technologies down the road that are really strategic and are going to change the future? And we have a very special guest uh, with us today, Steve Brown, who is a futurist. He's an expert in technology with over 30 years of experience in technology. And Steve, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on the Wealth Ability Show. Pleasure to be here. And I'm glad I made it by hook or by crook. It almost didn't happen. I'm so glad you made it. So if you would, just give us a little of your background, Steve, because it's pretty impressive. Sure. So um, I spent 30 years in tech, as you, as you mentioned, a long time at Intel, sort of during their heyday. So I had a lot of different positions with them, uh, everything from manufacturing through marketing, um, and I rose to be the chief evangelist and futurist. So I spent my time thinking about the world 10 years out, so my brain is sort of trained to think about the world five to 10 years in the future and what people will be doing with technology. So how we can use technology to improve people's lives, to um, streamline businesses and so on. Um, after I'd had my time at Intel, I decided it would be fun to go on the speaking circuit and write a book. So I did that for five or six years and uh, had a successful business uh, talking to Fortune 100 uh, businesses about where technology was going, what it meant for them uh, to help them think through uh, the strategic implications for their business. And then I got asked to go and spend a bit of time working with DeepMind. So DeepMind is, for those of you who don't know them, they are a British company, um, but they are an alphabet company. So Google owns them wholly, and they are an AI research company. So if you're hearing a lot about open AI in the press, um, they are kind of the counterbalance side of that with Google, although the technology that Google has recently wheeled out, Bard, uh, is not based on DeepMind technology. Uh, DeepMind is also famous for uh, creating a computer that was the first computer to beat a human being at the game of Go. So you may have heard about them that way as well. Uh, now back in uh, Portland, Oregon, where I've lived for about almost 30 years now and figuring out what's next for me. Well, that's awesome. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So in our in our last uh, show, we talked about business and business really foundation um, for really all government incentives, uh, really all all big wealth building is is business. Um, technology is a is a natural next step because technology is what drives business. Technology is kind of become the foundation. Of business. I know you talk a lot about how important technology is to business, but if we can, we can kind of step back a little bit um, and really look at, um, you know, what are, you know, from a big picture standpoint, 
why do we rely? Why have we come to rely so much on technology? Why why has technology become so important in the lives of the everyday person? Um, because it's so powerful and it's transformational. And you know, the, the difference in the way that a business can run with and without technology is the difference between winning and losing. Um, and technology has always um, transformed our ability to get things done. I mean, it, even simple technologies like a hammer, <laughs> you know, you can get a lot more done in a day working on a construction site with a hammer than without. It's a simple tool, but it's technology. Um, and so embracing technology is what gives businesses the edge over their competitors. And even if you have access to the same technology, it comes down to who implements it and who makes the best use of that technology to gain competitive advantage. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So speaking of that, so so that kind of brings me back to the government um, actually highly incentivizes technology. I mean, we know that Amazon and uh, Tesla both, um, you know, didn't pay tax for years. They had a lot more capital as a result of that. We know that France, uh, for example, has incentivized its technology companies. Uh, is South Africa has heavy tax incentives for technology. Why? Why the? Why does the government get so involved? Um, and we saw it. We saw it in Operation Warp Speed with the with the vaccines. Why does government? We we get it for the vaccines. We got why they got involved there. But typically, why do they generally stay involved? Because they seem to be so involved in encouraging technological developments. Yeah, I think it's um, it comes back to that old saying: "It's the economy, stupid." Right? It's uh, it is key to creating economic engines. You know, Tesla is an economic engine that employs people and puts money into their communities. Uh, governments are incentivized to make the economy go. And one of the ways you can turbocharge an economy is to invest in technology. You know, I just came back, I lived in London for the last 18 months. Uh, earlier this week, you know, people are talking in Parliament, in the British Parliament, about we need a Brit GPT, so Chat GPT, this open AI platform that's got everybody's attention recently. You know, the, the the British Parliament is talking about, you know, we don't want to get left behind as a country, and we need to invest in the technology and build the hardware so that you know British businesses can be competitive in this next era of computing built around AI. So it's a very common thing for governments to look at. Um, economic you know, wealth generation, value generation through the lens of what are the technologies we need to invest in and what are the companies, which are the, you know, the, the crucibles where all of that's ferments, um, how do we help them to be successful as quickly as possible? Um, that's really interesting. I mean, I was I was just talking this morning with a friend of mine about, uh, you know, I, when I fly these days, I'm pretty much flying on an Airbus. I'm I'm flying on a French plane. I'm not flying on a Boeing plane. I'm flying flying on a French plane. So France has definitely put you know they put that money into into Airbus and into that that technology. And it does. And then we see the the most recent tax bill in the U.S. Right, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and all the and and we see now Tesla bringing their batteries, um, their their battery production into the U.S. because of you know, the U.S. wants to be the ones building the batteries. So um, it does seem like there is a lot of competition for technology among um, different countries. Um, so not just in general, but not just among businesses, but among countries. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in the current geopolitical climate, 
um, where things are a little stressful, let's say, and uh, there's pressure, you know, Russia and China are not necessarily our friends. Um, look at the semiconductor industry. They're trying to make sure that they bring, they, they reshore a lot of semiconductor manufacturing because it's crucial to some very complicated supply chains in the United States. And if you don't have components, I mean, the car industry found this out uh, during COVID, right? They couldn't get the components they needed and they had cars finished, but because they couldn't put the chips in them, they couldn't sell them. And so there's a big effort now to reshore manufacturing and the government's been giving out incentives uh, with the CHIPS Act to make that happen because there's over-reliance on TSMC who are largely based in Taiwan and this could be some stress there. So um, yeah, it's important as well for resilience and to be able to protect your supply chains um, and supply um, networks to make sure that you can continue to function. So, so here's a question for you. Why, um, why don't the government just do their own technology? Why is it that they rely so much on independent entrepreneurs and businesses to develop the technology? Well, a cynical person would say, have you seen the government ever do anything on their own bits that's good? I mean, the government can do that, and they do do that. I mean, um, places like DARPA um, have created incredible technology. And, you know, we have GPS and the Internet, thanks to the U.S. government. Um, and, and that's changed the way that we live. Right. But I mean, there are there are smart people everywhere. And in the system that we have, people form into companies and you're most likely there are more smart people outside the government, outside DARPA than there are inside DARPA. So, you know, yes, fund DARPA and, and you get amazing things out of them like the Internet and GPS. But if you also create incentives and support people in the companies, that's where you get the best bang for the buck. Yeah. And, and of course, entrepreneurs, the, the job of an entrepreneur is to solve a problem, right? And you were with mm -hmm. Intel. You were with Intel in, um, quite a while ago. Um, I'm sitting here in Phoenix, Arizona. So I, I'm a big, uh, obviously a big fan of Intel. Intel's had a big impact and they're building, uh, they're, they're building more. Uh, chip manufacturers here, as, as is uh, as is Taiwan. So um, we we do see a lot of that. I see it when I, whenever I when I, whenever I drive outside, and it's it certainly has played a big role. So you um, you had this job as the futurist. So how do you describe that job? What is what does a futurist do? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, some people think I would just go and sit in a dark room and smoke peyote and think amazing thoughts. <laughs> Um, I wish it was that. Um, it's it's it is a discipline. Um, it is a real job. It's not a, a made up job. Although there are some people who I think sort of float around, and call themselves futurists, and they're just prognosticators. But it is a discipline of examining data um, and looking at the confluence of trends. So, to be a good futurist, I think you have to be able to understand technology. Uh, just because, as, as we started talking out talking about. Um, it, it is such a powerful disruptor. It, it is a force that can change many things. So you have to understand technology, it, its trajectories, um, when it's likely to go from a niche technology to something that's mainstream, what the price curves are going to be like so it can become affordable for more people and so on. So understanding technology, understanding industries and how they work, um, what the ongoing forces are within those industries, 
is there strong regulation like there is in healthcare? Are there um, other concerns? Are there infrastructure uh, challenges in transportation and so on? Um, so understanding different industries and ecosystems and how they work. And then most importantly, understanding people. So when I was the futurist at Intel, my boss was a cultural anthropologist, um, Stanford PhD. And she taught me it all starts with people. You have to understand their motivations, their interests, their aspirations, um, what they're interested in what, and what they want to achieve ultimately with technology. What are their challenges in life? And they may not know that technology is the solution, but they can tell you what their challenges are. And so it's a creative pursuit of combining an understanding of business, technology trends, and people. And, you know, I worked in a group of social scientists, ethnographers, cultural anthropologists. I'm not one of those people, but uh, sort of rubbed off on me. And figuring out five or ten years in the future, what technology will we have then? What kind of challenges might people have then? And typically the same challenges that they have today. Um, and how might business have shifted? And how could you put those together creatively to solve problems? So it, you're really asking two questions as a futurist. One, what's the future that we want to build? How do we want to get our hands dirty? What, what decisions are we going to make? What investments are we going to make to make something happen? What are we going to actually build? And then the second thing is, what's the future that we want to avoid? So it's really thinking through the potential consequences of, of technology. How could it be misused? Um, how could it be hacked? Um, how do we make sure that data privacy is, is maintained and so on? So it's really answering those two questions and doing it with a bunch of engineers and social scientists and figuring it out. Well, you bring up the point that technology is a two-edged sword, that it, it can lead to good things and it can lead to bad things. We've seen it just in um, the internet, right? It brings us good things, but it also, and, and um, you know, the social media brings us some not so good things, right? It brings us bots. It brings us, uh, you know, the ability to interfere, the ability to change people's minds and uh, not not always for the good. And it's interesting um, as we, as you look at, you mentioned open AI and uh, you, you look at the kind of competing forces there because you have some of that team that appears to really want to make this just a big moneymaker. And then you have other people who've been involved in it, like Elon Musk, you say, no, 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 this should just be open. Okay, I mean, here's a guy who, you know, opened his Tesla technology to the world, right, With without yeah. asking for anything in return. And so you, you do seem to have those two competing uh, interests right there. How do you, um, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, you always have, that's always the challenge, right? Um, you want to do something amazing where you can actually have impact for people in the world. And that's where... A lot of entrepreneurs get into it. It's like, well, I want to solve that problem. But in order to get the capital to solve that, to, to, to build the thing that you want to use to solve that problem, you have to find investors and investors want to be paid. Right. So there's always that tension where you're trying to keep control of things and stay focused on your core purpose as, as a, why did you start up, but also make sure that you don't run out of cash so that you can't fulfill your purpose. So it's really walking that line very carefully. Sorry, there's a dog getting excited about a snowplow coming coming by outside. Um, so that that's always been there. You know, I I've a, I didn't mention in my self introduction, but I'm also co-founder of a startup focused on supply chain transparency and resilience. 
and that you know getting that company stood up our mission and everybody that's a founder in the company is passionate about the potential impact we can have which is to empower consumers to know where their stuff came from and how it was made so they can make informed decisions about whether to buy this item or this item because this one was touched by people in a sweatshop and this one was a little more expensive but it's you know it's cotton that was farmed um organically and you know all, all the things all the questions that we have that we can't answer and we rely on brands to tell us so we have this passionate mission but we have to try and figure out how to fund that mm -hmm. and so you know we have to make careful decisions about who our investors are uh, and prioritize our tasks and build a roadmap but always keep focused on our purpose which is not to make money our purpose is to bring transparency to supply chains everywhere well and, and, uh, and that certainly seems to be I, I i think that's such an important just aspect of business you know are you about making money or are you about changing the world um, because yeah. certainly those who are really about changing the world, you know, you think of a Steve Jobs, he clearly want to change the world or Elon Musk, they clearly want to change the world versus there are a lot of business owners who do just want to make money. And, um, and certainly that yeah. helps us decide, you know, you know, what we want to do as business owners and we want to do as investors is what's our mission. Um, but we're, we're seeing technology just continue to ramp up faster and faster. I, I think the the world as a general, in general was, taken by surprise by chat GPT, right? I mean, absolutely caught off guard that something yeah. this powerful was, was imminent, right? Everybody's saying, well, AI is like years down the road. We're never going to get something that can actually do something that's useful. You know, right now it's just kind of like machine learning. That's all it is. And it's not, not something. Mm -hmm. And then we get chat GPT and all of a sudden we can, you know, write our term paper, um, with chat GPT. I'm, I'm convinced some of the novels I read were written by chat GPT, but, um, <laughs> as, as tests, the, Amazon, the Amazon store is now being flooded with novels and things written by chat GPT. I, I, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. So what, what do you see over the, I mean, you're a futurist, what do you see over the next 10 years and how is this accelerating and how's, and then we'll get into how does business, you know, take advantage of it and actually use it. Yeah. Um, so before we leap into that, I do want to say that it's not, it's okay to want to make money with your business, <laughs> um, but it's a result Agreed. of execution against your purpose, not the be all end all. Okay. So um, chat GPT, I think is, uh, it didn't take me by surprise, particularly. I mean, it's that it, that it happened when it did. Yes. That it was released perhaps before it's ready it shouldn't surprise me either but i think it, it should have been kept in the lab a little longer um where does it go next um i think it is a hint at the way we will live our lives and the way we will work in the future tools in the past have been um they've been subordinate to us and we learn to use them, whether that tool is a hammer, like I mentioned before, or PowerPoint or a spreadsheet, right? We learn to drive these tools. And when we, when we stop driving them, they don't do anything. They just sit there and you know, they are completely subordinate to us. We are moving into an era of smart tools where, which I think is the best name for that is assistants, um, which collaborate with us and they partner with us. 
And ChatGPT is going to seem pretty dumb compared to what we can expect perhaps five years from now, uh, and certainly 10 years from now, where you know, I think we can all imagine that we will have our own personal assistant. And not only will that personal assistant be able to do all of the things that a, a human personal assistant might do for us today, but they'll be experts on everything we want them to be experts on. <laughs> and they will be able to coach us to improve our performance. And we will think about ourselves, not, not just as us and what we can achieve in, as individuals, but in partnership with our assistant. And their job will be to elevate our performance. In part, that's by offloading tasks that are low value, but also by working with us to help us be more successful at the high value work. So, so if you look at it, let's take an our a typical entrepreneur, business owner, um, we're, we're not engineers. We're, we're, we, we may not understand why the technology works the way it does. How are we going to get our arms around this? How's, I mean, you know, with, uh, I mean, it took, you know, us, some of us old folks took us uh, a few years just to figure out how to use an iPhone. Right. So how, how do you actually get, so that you're using it, so you're comfortable with it, because it is a complete, I mean, I, I know like high school English teachers going to be going crazy right now because they have completely changed the way they do assignments and the way they teach English, right? Um, with chat GPT, because uh, they're never, there's no way they're ever going to be able to, you know, just say, go, go write a paper on this and not, and know that it's not chat GPT, right? So how, how do we, how do you, how do you think the average business owner deals with that? Start us read my book. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, and I, I, I know this problem is, is there. That's why I wrote my book. Um, I don't, I'm not doing this as a shameless plug. But that's no, the just as a reminder, the, the, <laughs> the book is The Innovation Ultimatum, right? The Innovation six, Ultimatum. Six yeah. strategic technologies uh, that will reshape every business in the 2020s. Yeah, and I wrote it for business leaders who are faced with this exact problem. You know, they are trying to run their business and they know their business. What they don't know is the technology that's coming down the line. And so and it's not just my book. There are other books out there as well. But it's incumbent on business leaders to spend a percentage of their time. And I'd recommend at least one percent of their time thinking about the future, learning about the future. And that means investing time to read books to watch YouTube videos, whichever way you consume information best uh, and go and learn about these technologies and their implications for you because they are profound. And we, you know, it happens to us in the eighties, right? When computers suddenly came and mm -hmm. started being on people's desktops and we all had to learn to peck away at keyboards and, you know, WordPerfect at the time and uh, Lotus one, two, three and how floppy disks worked. And, you know, we all had to learn that 40 years ago now we have to learn it again for the next generation. It's just the way it is. Uh, so, so you mentioned um, earlier about um, you had to understand technology, but you also under, uh, had to understand people. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you combine, you know, how do you, for businesses, because we know it's all about people, right? Because there are customers uh, that it is about people. How do you go about learning that side of things? How did you go about doing it? So I was lucky enough to be in a team at Intel of about 80 ethnographers, anthropologists, and social scientists who would actually go and spend time with people and ask them questions and learn about their lives. 
And so that's something I write about in the book a little bit, is what are the, the six constants <clears throat> that drive people, their aspirations in life? There are lots of different models of ways of thinking about human behavior, but um, it really comes down to understanding human behaviors and aspirations. Maslow's hierarchy sort of gets at it, but it's a bit of a blunt instrument. So once you get to that higher level of self-actualization, what is it people actually want with their lives? And they, they want to be healthy uh, and they want the people around them to be healthy and well. Uh, they want to uh, constantly learn and grow. They want to be productive and get things done. Um, at appropriate times, they want to be entertained. They want to be creative and feel creativity uh, flow through them. Uh, and they want to be connected and be connected to the people that they love. They want to be connected to the people that they work with to be productive. They want to be connected to the brands that they care about. They want to be connected to the uh, football team that they love. Um, it's about connection. So those are the six things. That's the lens through which I look at people and think about what problems can I solve for them five years from now. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine, he's a client of mine, he's a former board certified surgeon, and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. Interesting. So let's uh, let's talk about those uh, trends that you talk about in your book, the six uh, technologies. What do you see as, um, you know, not to give away your book, but uh, so we do want people to read it, but what do you see as those key technologies and uh, how, what are they going to drive uh, in the future of the business and why? Oh, okay. So layers of questions. This is good. Yes. Um, so let's start with um, Internet of Things and Sensors. Um, not a new trend, been around for the last 10 years or so, some could argue last 30 years, but tiny computers that are connected with lots of sensors that you can bed in, in everything so you can make your infrastructure smart. And um, businesses are using that to gain business intelligence, to manage their operations, um, you know, being able to track packages as they come through, um, um, a shipping network, for example, being able to know where, where all your trucks are, um, being able to monitor, are those trucks needing maintenance? Now, all these sensors can report data, gather data, um, and you can create a dashboard basically for your business that lets you get better insight into its operation and help it to run more smoothly. That's the basic idea of the Internet of Things. Um, I mean, people are using it for lots of other things as well, but that's the one I think business owners need to know is how can you use the Internet of Things and sensors to get eyes on your business so that you can manage it more effectively? So that's that's the first one. Um, and I'm working my way up to um, the big one at the end, which is AI. So we'll come to that last. Uh, next one is, uh, let's do blockchain next. So blockchain technologies, also known as distributed ledger technologies, um, 
people may have heard of blockchain because they, it's, it's the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies. Right. One of the things I write in my book is cryptocurrencies are boring. <laughs> not interested in them. I don't see big utility in them, even though a lot of people They're do. just a token. Right. So um, where it is interesting is in solving um, business problems. Mm -hmm. And one of the big business problems is getting eyes on your supply chain. Why is it a blockchain needed? It's because it's a way of storing data immutably. So once you put data into a blockchain, think of it like a big filing cabinet, you can't change it. If you do change it, there's a record that you changed it. So it's a way of getting trusted, trusted data. Uh, it's going to change the way that people do transactions. Um, particularly, I think, as you look out over the next 10 years, you may see it change the mortgage business um, mm -hmm. and financial transactions. Uh, but it's particularly interesting in supply chain. That's why uh, my startup, the Providence Chain Network, um, is using distributed ledger technology, uh, not blockchains, but a, a version of it, distributed ledger technology, to um, enable brands to, to track uh, where things came from through their supply chains and to do it in a way where they can guarantee the information when it was entered cannot be changed by anybody. So that's, yeah. that's the next one. So, so I actually look at blockchain as triple entry accounting. So, um, because so basically you have, yeah, you, you know, you have your debit and credit, but then you have an auditor, right? Which is basically every transaction audits every other transaction. So I, I actually think it as, you know, three-dimensional accounting and that that's, that's really what blockchain is. And when you take yeah. accounting, you know, before we had double entry accounting, we couldn't have a global economy. Right. We have a global economy because we have double entry accounting. But now with the distributed ledger accounting, as you talked about in blockchain, now we can have a global economy that we can be sure of because you can't right. change it without seeing that it's been changed. Yeah, it's a trustless technology. You don't need trust. It's just built in. You can trust it because it's uh, it's automatic. So, yeah, it's a beautiful way of describing it. I like that. Very good. Thank you. I'm gonna st I might steal that from you. <laughs> it's, it's a great way to, to oh, describe go for it. Thank you. So, uh, so Internet of Things, blockchain, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, virtual reality has some business applications, but it's mostly in training and simulation um, and design, um, you know, architecture, those sorts of things. I think where it gets really interesting is when we finally get to augmented reality that works. Uh, and that is a price point that everybody can enjoy it, um, particularly in the business context. And you've seen some some things with HoloLens from Microsoft that got in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And we'll see if Apple ever comes out with something, but uh, they have all the talent. Uh, they've been buying it up for years. Let's so see if that's so it, can we step back just a second, make sure yeah. everybody understands what we're talking about? Can you, How do you define augmented reality? Yeah, how is it different from virtual reality? Yeah. So in virtual reality, some of you may have tried it, you put on a helmet and suddenly you know, you're cut off from the physical world around you and you are in an alternate reality. You might be in a video game, you could be, you know, looking around the street in Paris, but you, you feel transported elsewhere and you are no longer connected to the world around you and you're physically there, but you can't see it. With augmented reality, you are overlaying digital information in your field of view. So you can still see the world around you, but now there might be digital objects on the table around you. There might yeah. be information, might be a monitor floating to your side you can turn and look at. Um, it's a way of blending the two worlds together. And because it doesn't cut you off from the physical world, 
Now it's useful in a business context because if I'm on a manufacturing line, I need to be able to see what I'm doing with my hands, but I may need lots of information and I don't want to have to put down tools or you know, and pick up a tablet, that sort of thing. I want it just floating right in front of my eyes. So there are all sorts of interesting applications in uh, manufacturing, in healthcare, um, in education, and you name it. You, when you think about what you're essentially doing is changing the display. For a long time, you know, since the beginning of computing, displays are 2D rectangular boxes. Right, physical. And, yeah. And this makes the whole world the canvas. So, you know, you can imagine being able to place objects around your house. Uh, you could have a little weather display that you can put wherever you want. And it'll always be there. And you come back to that room and there'll be a little weather display on the table, um, giving you the information that you need right now. Um, and, and as we start to get to those AI assistants, you want to be able to communicate information in a way that's visual, because that's our primary for most of us. That's our primary sense. So augmented reality and AI assistants are a very interesting combination, because if you have a worker who is, let's say, a maintenance worker who's out to fix, that's 10 years from now, fix a robot. And it's a model of robot they're not familiar with. You know, they're a good tech, they know robots, but this, is, this model is, is new, they've not seen it before. Now they can consult their AI assistant and using augmented reality will show them, open up this hatch, check these fuses, check these switches and guide them visually on what to do. What you've done there is create a hybrid worker, a combination of an AI and you know, AI intelligence and knowledge, human intelligence and experience and dexterity and put those together to create one powerful worker. So that's why augmented reality is so interesting, is the ability for an AI to show a human what to do. Wow, that's that's um, that that that's interesting. You you wonder if, uh, if if those who are wanting to break into a safe might like that idea too. So, <laughs> well, oh, here's here's the safe, and here's here's, here's what you need to do in order to, uh, to to crack the the code on the safe. So, um, as we said, good good and bad. All right, so we're up to augmented reality. What's next? Um, where should we go next? Um, autonomous machines. So. This is using artificial intelligence and sensing and machine vision to enable machines to have some level of autonomy. This is robots, uh, autonomous vehicles, and so on. Uh, probably done that one to death. I think we've talked about those a lot. Sure. But um, being able to start thinking about delivery robots, um, and it's really being able to create much smarter robots that have human-like vision and ultimately human-like dexterity, to be able to take on the jobs that we don't want to do. You know, picking fruit, for example, uh, back-breaking work, um, very, not, not very well paid. A robot couldn't do that five years ago. Now you start to get robots that have the intelligence and the ability to sense and be able to pick a delicate fruit like a strawberry or a raspberry um, and to be able to do that at a cost-effective rate. So. That's where I think you'll see autonomous machines coming into play is their ability to take on those roles where people just don't want to do those jobs anymore. You know, we're short of 50,000 truck drivers in the U.S. right now. It would be, be nice not to have to, to worry about those shortages, for sure. Right, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's a way of sort of augmenting the economy and filling those holes uh, with a bit of technology. Okay, so what's next? Um, where have we done some? Let's do AI. So AI is the big one. Um, that's the big daddy. It's It defines a second era of computing. The first era of computing was a uh, computer was something that you programmed and you put it, you put in input, it operated in the program and you've got output. Um, AI is different. AI is different in that you train it, you don't program it, and you give it inputs and outputs and it figures out a model, what's called a model itself. So for example, if I wanted to create an AI, let's give you a simple example I use in the book. It's, it's, this is one that's used often. Uh, if I want to create an AI that's able to visually tell the difference between a picture of a cat and a dog. To program that in the traditional sense would be very difficult. You've got to analyze pixels in a photograph. You're figuring out, well, do I look for pointy ears? Do I look for whiskers? It's quite difficult. With an AI, you show it lots and lots and lots of pictures of cats and dogs that are labeled. This is a cat, this is a dog. And the, the neural network in there, by being exposed to many of these examples, trains itself, it learns what, so when you show it a new picture, it will tell you, well, this is a cat or this is a dog, based on its experience and what it's been trained. So you're creating these models. And why is that important? It's important because AI enables us, it's a tool to help us solve problems that we don't know how to solve ourselves. So we can show it the problem, give it enough examples, and it will then figure out how to solve that problem for us. That's oversimplified, but that's, just, that's essentially why it's a big breakthrough. Um, where's AI going next? Uh, back in 2017, Google created this technology called Transformers. And they initially developed it thinking it would help with language translation, and it did. When you trans, uh, translate a language, you can look at each word, and as you go through each word, you translate that word for the word that's in the other language. But if, you, if anybody knows any languages, that doesn't work very well, because you kind of need to know the context within that, within that sentence of how that word was, was included. And so you, you created this transformer technology that could understand and look at the context of a whole sentence or a whole paragraph. And as it's doing the translation, bear in mind all of those, the context of the other words in the sentence. It turns out that that technology is also useful for doing all kinds of other things. And the large language models that power things like ChatGPT, Google Bard, um, the stuff coming out of DeepMind, and many, many language startups that are out there uses that transformer technology and that awareness of words in the sentence. And it's essentially, a, when you're talking to one of those things, it is a next word predictor. That's all it's doing is predicting the next word in the sentence. Um, and so you, know, you ask it a question and it starts to look at its large language model and it's predicting the same way when you go into the Google um, search bar and you you might write, um, what is the best, and it'll start to put predictions of what you think, what it thinks you might do the next word you'll type. It's like a, a, um, a version of that on steroids. So it's predicting words, and that turns out to give you these amazing results that feel like you're talking to a human, <laughs> um, where it's predicting what it should say next, and uses this context of looking at all the question that you've asked it, and all the data it knows, 
to make these predictions. There's no intelligence behind these things. Um, it just appears that way to us. So artificial intelligence is great for optimizing um, your uh, looking at your, the data that comes out of your business, uh, looking for optimizations, uh, and finding patterns in data, lots of complex data that humans would never see. So that's a, one application of AI. Another one is going to be in reimagining customer service. People are already looking to do that with ChatGPT and with sophisticated chatbots for a while. Um, and I think it's also going to be useful in augmenting all of your staff, as I mentioned before, by pairing them with an assistant to help them do their job better. I'll give you an example. There is a company called Harvey. Um, Harvey just um, announced a big partnership with one of the world's biggest international law firms. It is an assistant for lawyers. And it's based on chat GPT technology, but trained on legal texts. And it helps a lawyer to look through a long NDA or a contract and find problems with it. Or to allow the lawyer to ask questions of the chatbot to say, does this contract comply with California employment law? And chat GPT up. Harvey will figure that out and answer. So it's a natural language interface. And then Harvey may come back and say no, and the lawyer can say, well, rewrite it, rewrite that section so it's compliant with California law section, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so this is partnership between an AI and a worker, and it's going to make those lawyers far more effective, and it runs in multiple languages. Yeah, so let me ask you this question. So, you know, there's, I mean, Elon Musk has brought this up, that there's some fear of what... AI might do from a negative side. From a pure business side, how do you as a business owner have these technologies work for you instead of working against you? Because in it, you're going to get left behind pretty quick, it seems to me, if you're not using these technologies. I mean, a law firm, for example, that uses that technology um, is going to be so far ahead as a, from a law firm that is, I mean, you know, still reading paper. Yeah, I mean, same companies that had a typing pool versus ones that right. paid money to invest in putting word processors on everybody's desk or putting email to get rid of the memos that people used to pass around in the mail room. You know, um, com companies don't have any choice but to keep on that treadmill and embrace this technology um, because otherwise they won't be competitive. Now, the tough thing is, well, I don't know what the options are. Right. Um, I, I don't know who to partner with. Um, it, it's tough, right? But I, I think it's a case of partner with good IT suppliers who can guide you through that. Um, get, get as smart as you can. Read my book, obviously, but get as smart as you can on these technologies. And with, when I wrote my book, um, I wanted to empower business leaders with what are the questions to ask when they talk to their IT providers. Or talk to if they're big enough to have an IT department. Talk to their IT department and say, "I want this. Show me how I could do this," um, because it's it's really hard otherwise, and and things are moving faster than ever. Yeah, they 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 are, and and a, a lot of people are going to get left behind, for for sure. I mean, for example, I let me take a very simple one: take bookkeepers. Mm -hmm. I see absolutely no reason for bookkeepers. From a technology standpoint, you should be able to easily pull the information from the bank, 
it should connect with the general ledger system and it should produce the bookkeeping. You should not have to do any of that. So that manual type of data entry should be gone completely. And um, it should make us more productive, but only if we're willing to change what our what productivity means to us. Yeah, and it, it, it's, um, it requires business leaders to sort of dig deep, I think, and, and be willing to embrace change, to, to imagine the possibilities. You know, the, my consulting company, I call possibility and purpose. And my, my premise is, there's this huge landscape of possibility now. And with technology, you, know, you can take your business in one of many different directions. So you've got this landscape of possibility. How do you decide which way to go? Where should I be placing my bets? Where should I be investing? And where should I not? Because you know, if we have limited capital. Um, and that's where I always encourage people, go back to your core purpose. If you haven't sketched out what your company's core purpose is, you need to go back to basics and really think that through. Because that will help you as you're trying to navigate this landscape of possibility. It will help you to find your way through and make help you make decisions about where you invest and where you don't. Because it's going to force you to stay true to fulfilling your core purpose. Okay, so I've got fulfilling your core purpose. What are like two or three other things that you think every business owner should be looking at when it comes to technology right now? Ooh, um, I mean, certainly go look at your supply chain. How can you digitize your supply chain? Um, get eyes on that, make it more efficient, uh, build resilience into your supply chain using um, digital supply chain technology. That's, uh, that's high up the list. Um, and I think train your workers, you know, don't, don't rely on you, yourself as a business leader to get smart and all this stuff. Um, encourage all of your team to do that. And I was consulting with a number of companies a few years ago and they would buy books, not just for their leadership team, but for everybody in the company, mm -hmm. because they said, we need you all to understand this because when you're, when you're bringing change in, there's going to be change. Technology always brings change with it. That has impacts to people because it means they're going to have to do things in a different way. And if you want people to come along with you and embrace that change, even though you know, people don't like giving up doing things the way they used to do them, um, the best way to do that is to bring them along and explain to them so that they understand, oh yeah, we have to do things different or we're not gonna be competitive as a company. And I see this technology coming down the pipeline here and train them on how to ride that technology rather than making them redundant and then having to let them go. So I think it's about engaging your team early on in that conversation, do it in a way that's exciting um, because you know this is gonna allow us to fulfill our purpose in a much more powerful way. It's gonna let us serve customers in better ways. It's gonna let us um, you know, be more productive and you're gonna do less boring work because of this. You know, Get them on your side, get them excited, but don't be honest about the fact there will be change, there will be impact here, but we're working in partnership with you and we're gonna walk through this together. And we're gonna get as many of us through to the other side um, and we'll all be living more productive lives and we'll be enjoying our work more as a result of it. But you have to sell that. You have to tell that story and mean it. 
Yeah, I like that. What, what, what I'm hearing is that you see technology as a way to make people more productive, actually doing things that are more enjoyable, doing things that are more useful than what they've been doing and taking the drudgery out of work because literally technology should be able to handle all, like you said, the tasks that we don't want to do, technology ought to be able to handle all of those tasks. So we have no more menial work um, going right. on. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big, I mean, that's a pretty big statement that you're saying that, look, eventually there could be no menial tasks. They could all be pur purposeful tasks. Am I hearing that right? Um, yeah, at least we, that's a goal to be heading towards. Yes. Uh, but it's not just that. Um, it also can make us feel more creative. Let me give an example. So Auto, Autodesk, um, in, their, in their design products, they put AI into that and a, a technological generative design. And what it does is, it, let's say you design an industrial valve, and it will then take that design of an industrial valve and riff on it and create thousands of different options. And then put each of those options through simulation and you can give it goals and say, well, I'm, I want to make this as light as I can. I want it to be physically strong. I want to reduce the cost of it. It puts it all those thousand um, variations through uh, simulation and comes back to you and says, the cheapest version is this one here. The one that's strongest is here. The one that's um, lightest weight is this one. And it gives the designer choices then. They're working in partnership with that AI. Now, when uh, Autodesk first started rolling that out with designers, they expected designers to say, well, it's making me more productive. You know, I'm able to design uh, more things in a day. And they did. But what surprised Autodesk, I was talking to one of their VPs, who's a friend of mine, a few years ago. What really shocked them is that every designer reported it made them feel more creative because they could explore this wide creative space instead of being able to create, you know, they had the time to create two or three versions of something and then see which one felt best. They could create hundreds or thousands and explore that design space and then go, well, that was good. What if I changed this? And, and they were riffing on the design that um, they hadn't generated on their own, right? This is mm. the designs that they were coming up with were neither something that the AI could do on its own or that the human could do on its own. And so the two of them together would create the design and then use that to design more ideas. And this creative explosion that came from it is something that I think we can all expect in the workplace in the future, we're working with these assistants. It will liberate us to not only offload the crappy tasks we don't want to do, but to make the, the um, high value creative tasks that we enjoy even more enjoyable. Well, that is, um... It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about. I, I think the important thing, one of the important things to me is we can think of um, technology as a threat or as an opportunity. And it sounds like you're, you're really focused on let's, let's make it an opportunity because if we don't make an opportunity by definition, it's going to be a threat. Um, we, have a choice. Yeah. We, we have a choice. We, we can look at it from the positive or from the negative. We can choose how we're going to react. Um, certainly true in uh, you know, my profession from the tax standpoint, I can see multiple uses here. I can see multiple opportunities. And I think that it's going to be an opportunity to really uh, allow us to do things that I think are more enjoyable, that are more satisfying, that we, we you know, we go to that mass, go back to the Maslow hierarchy of needs 
a little more, a little more fulfilling and, uh, and really speed up, uh, things will just continue to speed up. So, um, once more, thank you, Steve Brown. The book is the innovation ultimatum. Um, we want besides the book, where else could we go for more information from you, Steve? Um, you know, I had a website, <laughs> baldfuturist.com. There's not much up there at the moment because I just did this assignment in London. Uh, but that's where you can go. There'll be, there'll be something there probably in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you, Steve. Um, the technology is uh, fortunately highly incentivized in uh, in the tax law. So we do actually reduce our taxes when we get into technology, um, both when we buy it or when we create it ourselves. Um, it certainly does produce more profits. It certainly has a, an opportunity to produce a lot more cash flow, and we'll. Um, and we'll continue um, just uh, for everybody. We're going to continue this discussion next time. We're going to talk about real estate and the opportunities, uh, the real estate and how does real estate interact with business and technology? Um, because it is kind of a building block type of a situation. We start with business, we go to technology. Real estate's actually, um, even in this day of um, uh, working away, we're still working somewhere. And so we are still somewhere physically um, and we will always be somewhere physically. Um, uh, I hope, I hope we will all be somewhere physically and it won't be all AI and, uh, and uh, it will, the augmented reality won't take over the place. But thank you again, Steve. Thanks everyone for joining us. Just remember when, when we do really learn this stuff, as Steve says, you know, it's really learning um, about technology, understanding it, make sure your team understands it, make sure, sure we understand how it's gonna work to, to meet our goals. What we'll always end up with, of course, is way more money and way less tax. We'll see everybody next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>